1: Hello and welcome to the Two-Footed Podcast brought to you by EPLindex.com in association with our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, so do check out their services at LibertyShield.com. It is Thursday, October the 8th, and I'm delighted to be joined by Ryan Baldi. How are you, sir? I'm good, thank you, Dave. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. When I decided to start doing this podcast, you were one of the first people I reached out to uh, to have on as a guest. Obviously, you've been quite busy of late so uh delighted to finally get you on um we're four weeks into the season ryan what do you make of the premier league season so far
0: i think my main takeaway is it's going to be a strange one (laughs) we've seen some unusual results particularly last weekend um it felt like the football world went a bit mad didn't it and everything was turned on its head um so I think the, the 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 circumstances we still find ourselves in, and are still trying to work our way through and figure out uh, best practices and and you know how to make this thing work, um, are going to contribute to perhaps a little bit of a topsy turvy season. And I, I'm I'm really interested to see um, over the course of a season how that bears out. Could we see you know some kind of upset in a title race, or will over time? The quality of of the best two or three squads really show through. Um, so yeah, that's it, it's been kind of strange so far. It's been great to see teams like Leeds doing so well and and and, and holding their own and punching above their weight to some degree. Uh, I'm just wondering whether there'll be kind of a regression away from the mad- madness and back towards the mean. So that's what I'm going to be keeping my eye on.
1: Yeah, it will be interesting to see if there's a rude awakening. I suppose for the likes of Everton and Villa, who've jumped out to unbeaten starts and and are the two top teams in the league at the moment. Leeds, like you mentioned, they've made a great start. Obviously, then, from the, the opposite side of that, Manchester City have had a disappointing start. Manchester United have had a terrible start. And the two other newly promoted teams, West Brom and Fulham, really couldn't have had worse starts if they tried one point between them. Um, conceding goals left and right, having trouble scoring goals. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, and probably over the next three months or so, whether that all starts to shake out and and even itself out, or whether we are, like you said, in for maybe a repeat of the Leicester Premier League season where someone just comes from left field and, and wins the league.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, that's going to be the storyline I think will we'll play out. Certainly over the next few months, I think we'll have a better handle on it by that point as to whether this is something that's going to last or or whether, like I said, the, the quality of teams like Liverpool and the depth as well of their squads are, are going to show through. But um, yeah, so far, so exciting, I think.
1: So has, has there been any team, for good reasons, that's just stood out to you so far, a team that you were maybe expecting to do okay who is just really blowing you away with the quality of football, with the results they're taking in?
0: Yeah, it's the ones uh, you mentioned. Uh, uh, Leeds were the first team I picked out off the top of my head. And of course, I think we've been looking forward to seeing them back in the Premier League under Bielsa for a couple of years now. You know, they eventually got back up last season and um, you know, earned promotion last season got back up this season. And um, they're kind of living up to everyone's wildest expectations of what, what Bielsa ball would look like in the Premier League. And it's, it's thrilling. It's been great. Um, you know, nine goals scored, eight goals conceded. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's Leeds, that's Bielsa. And, uh, what's really fascinating is we're going to see, see Bielsa pit his wits against some of the real heavyweights of, of, uh, of coaching, uh, throughout the world. You know, guys like Klopp, of course, he's come up against Guardiola before, but not for a long, long time. Um, so so that's where, that's where I think a lot of the intrigue is going to be for me this season. I think the whole Leeds story is fascinating. And also, as you mentioned, Villa and Everton. It, it, could it be that Everton have actually spent money well this summer? Um, it's, it's working out that way so far. And I, think, I find um, Dominic Calvert-Lewin's progression really interesting too. Uh, a player who's really surprised me over the last few months. I think I don't think too many people would have seen his his development come in. Um, so I'm interested to see whether we can sustain that. And then Aston Villa are a team. Actually tipped to do a little bit better than they did last season. I, I was uh, I was surprised they struggled quite as much as they did. I think that they spent a lot of money. They didn't spend it all that well, but I thought there was enough quality in that team to make them a little bit more comfortable than they were in the end. Um, but keeping all Jack Grealish is a is a huge deal for them because uh, he just uh, he looks a really quality player. I think he uh, he could easily play for one of the you know three or four bigger teams in the league. Uh, he was of course linked with Man United. Maybe in a non uh, pandemic time would have would have left this summer. So perhaps that's worked to to Villa's benefits slightly. And then they've got Ollie Watkins, who's, who's scoring goals for them now as well. So, uh, yeah, those the, the three teams you mentioned are the, are the three teams who've most pleasantly surprised me, surprised me so far this season, I think.
1: You mentioned Jack Reed, and you wrote a profile on him uh, for the BBC uh, about a month ago, maybe? Yeah. And um, it was a really good read. If, if anyone wants to read it, it's Ryan's pinned tweet on Twitter. Um, his development and maturity this year... He looks far more comfortable in his setting. He looks far more relaxed with who he has around them around him. Last season I thought he went a little bit the Wolf Zaha type of way where he was playing Hero ball and basically trying to win games by himself. Now he's become more of a playmaker. Um he's always obviously always been a playmaker and last year's one of the top players in the league for for big chance creation but this year he seems to be far more willing to I suppose share the load he's not trying to win games by himself he's he has trust in Ollie Watkins you can see now trust in in the likes of Ross Barkley do you think he becomes first choice for England and as you say maybe next summer we do see him take a step up in terms of the, the, the the club he's playing for
0: yeah, I think it's is really fascinating. I don't think he will because for for whatever reason it's taken Surfcade so long to select him and and, and throw him in and give him a chance. And when he did make his debut, I think I think he came on the right wing, if I'm not not mistaken, which is just not a position he tends to play. What I think, but you know, were I in charge, not that I know any more than Gareth Surfcade does by any means, but he's someone I've been looking at to to play quite a key role because I think he's the kind of player. Uh, stylistically he's very different to what England have I don't think they have the kind of guy who can carry the ball through midfield like he can and uh, they've got a lot of nice tidy dribblers who can pick it up you know 30 yards from goal go past their man and and uh, get off a ball into the box for a sharp shot but Grealish is the kind of guy can, who can really, really leave a lot of pressure um, which he seemed to do for Villa quite a lot of pick it up quite deep and just carry it um, and by all accounts as you mentioned in that piece I wrote the, the research and the interviews I did for that that's the kind of thing he was doing from a very young age uh, he can play as an eight, or he can play as, uh, as as a left winger cutting in onto his right foot. So, he's he's got an awful lot going for him. I think you're right to to the point to the kind of maturity in his game now, um, becoming a much more rounded and uh, thoughtful footballer. I think, uh, and he seems to just really, really enjoy his football, um, which is great to see. Um, he he is coming for a lot of a lot of flak in the press um, over the last few years. You know, a lot of it deserved, but I think a lot of it also disproportionate and um, what I was struck by uh, when I was speaking to people for that profile I wrote was, was how many of them go to bat for Grealish and, and, and defend him despite perhaps not having that that long of an interaction with him in their playing careers so a lot of guys who, who played with him when he was on loan at Notts County for a year um, were really quick to defend him against a lot of the criticism against guys who played with in the youth team um, as well as people he's played with more recently and, and coaches who've worked with him so I think he's the kind of character who 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 is 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 a kind of leader who leads by um, sort of the force of his personality in a lot of ways I think and now that he's like I say maturing as a footballer I think he's going to be the figurehead for a Villa team who could really could could kind of overachieve this season especially relative to what they did last year um, so I think there's potential for them to do quite well and at least sort of consolidate mid table mid-table position and then from there who knows because they're one of the one of the bigger clubs of English football it wasn't that mm. long ago under Martin O'Neill they had a really exciting team we were pushing for the you know the, the top six uh on a, on a fairly regular basis so there's the potential there with the right kind of investment I think they've learned from some of their uh, recruitment mistakes last year they seem to be doing a better job of it this year I think uh, John McGinn is another player I like a lot so yeah Villa have got a lot going for them I think Grealish is is a really suitable figurehead for for how they're developing and re-establishing themselves
1: he absolutely is and and I, I i like you i i really like the balance they have in this team now um i think they've done great business in the summer i think last summer they came up with, with real ambition and i think they had the right idea they just didn't execute it properly mm. and that kind of caused the problems but they definitely underachieved last year this year obviously they've spent another 100 million or so they have I'd imagine Dean Smith has, a, has quite a bit of internal pressure on him because the owners of Villa, the two main owners, are both mega rich. One of them owns the Milwaukee Bucks uh, NBA franchise and has shown a real desire to win in sport. When he invests, he wants to win. He's not necessarily looking to get money back out of it, but he is looking to win. And I'd imagine Dean Smith has probably been told, look, 17th isn't going to cut it again you need to be mid table this is a you know a 5 year plan or 6 year plan that we have here with you where you know you have to be progressing every year and like you say villa are one of the the bigger clubs in england they're a former european cup winner they've won you know multiple league titles they've proven in the last i suppose in, in the history of the premier league that they can at times compete In the early days of the Premier League, they were, you know, they finished second to Manchester United. They had really good teams in the late 90s. And then that Martin O'Neill team that you mentioned, they were horrible to play against. Nobody enjoyed playing them. They were just, they had really good players. They were really well drilled. They worked really hard. And they were just lethal in front of goal as well. So Villa have pedigree of being a good team. And they're a big club. And when they go and they meet with players, They can sell their history and say, look, this is where we've been. And yes, it's in the past, but this is where we want to get back to. And maybe Grealish has just fully bought into that now. Maybe he doesn't need the move. Maybe he can just be the biggest fish in quite a big pond without having to go and be, you know, a medium-sized fish in a giant pond as he would be at Liverpool or United or, or Man City.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, as you mentioned, the the feathers they've got in their hat when it comes to recruiting new players and and better players as they progress, um, the fact they've been able to hold on to Grealish will only aid that. Um, You know, we've got this young, gifted player, a homegrown boy who... There was serious interest in from some some of the biggest clubs in the league, and and we kept him. And you know that's how much he believes in this project, and that's um, the quality of player we're not only looking to, to 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 have and develop, but to to hold on to long term. I think that speaks to the the project, like you said, and and the fact that they're investing not just for returns, but for for, for success. So yeah, uh, if that puts pressure on Dean Smith, then um, then that, you know that that probably will be the case. Um, we'll see whether he's got the the chops to deal with it um, over the longer term. But yeah, I think it is an exciting, exciting time to be a Villa fan after a few years out of the league. Of course, the, the Leeds story has is, is eclipsed it, and understandably so, because you know, they've been away longer and a, a huge club in their own right, and of course you've got to be else relevant. But there's a really interesting story developing with Villa too, and I think that's one worth keeping an eye on.
1: Yeah, for me, I, I love the fact that we have Leeds and we have Villa back in the Premier League, because I, I think they just belong in the Premier mm. League. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and you know, when you were, when we were growing up, Brian, there were just certain clubs that just were Premier League teams. Yeah. Like for me, I want Coventry back in the Premier League because when <laughs> yeah. I was growing up, Coventry were a Premier League team. And I know that's kind of irrational and given what they've been through in the last 15 yeah. years as well. You know, it's hard to see them getting themselves back to the Premier League level, but I want Coventry back in the Premier League. I want Nottingham Forest back in the Premier League. Uh, and I actually think Nottingham Forest have made a really good appointment in Chris Houghton. So if the owner and the director of football can stay out of his way, maybe they have a chance. Um, a team that hasn't started the season well, and since we're talking about Jack Grealish, he, he's part of the reason they maybe haven't started well. Manchester United have had a disastrous start to the season. One win from three. In truth, they should have lost all three games. Brighton completely outplayed them. United went into the summer with a plan to sign Jadon Sancho and Jack Grealish. The Sancho deal, it appears they never got close to. But there was still the possibility of the Grealish deal, and and that was a deal being talked about by a number of people. And then one day all of a sudden he announces that he's uh he signed a new contract, or Villa announced that he signed a new contract to stay at Villa Park. And that was, I think, maybe the first sign that United's summer was not going to go to plan. And it didn't go to plan and the season hasn't started to plan either.
0: No, it's all a bit of a mess, isn't it? I think there's just and it's been the case for a while now, it's just incompetence at all levels. Um a lot has been made of the of the failure to make the the moves that they they intended to make I think the Jalen Sancho fiasco is an embarrassment to a club especially when you you read the stories that have come out over the last few days I think the Athletic and the Guardian maybe a few others both had the kind of inside track of of how the Sancho deal failed to materialize and it was was a lot down to the fact of kind of hubris on United's side thinking that you know we're this big super club who. Who will get their way in the end, and and that Dortmund set this arbitrary deadline and set their price, but you know they will cave in the end. They will they will lower their price. They will extend that deadline. I and mean, it just never happened, and um, I think it kind of is a reflection of of where United are, uh, both on and off the pitch at the moment, as this fading force of global football. But by the same token, uh, the squad they've got should be doing better than it is. That um, they're not the players they've got. You know, they're they're. Like you said, if they've only won one game so far, they're sixteenth in, the, in, in the table. But how many of the fifteen teams above them would, would swap squads with them in a heartbeat? You know they should be doing a lot better than they are, and I think that's that's a failure of of motivation on the players' behalf and also a failure of coaching as well. It's just, as I said, there's I think there's incompetence at all levels, and I think um, it doesn't show any signs of of changing anytime soon. I don't think
1: it doesn't uh, until they put an actual football structure in place at the club, I can't say that things improve. They remind me so much of where Liverpool were a number of years ago, where it was the business side <laughs> were trying to run the football side. And Ed Woodward is, is incredibly good at the business side, at maximising the financial power of Manchester United commercially. He is one of the very best. Um, I'm sure Matt Judge is very good at what he does on the business side. But these people don't know anything about football. And Oli only has so much scope for what he's allowed to do. Now, I don't think he's, I don't think he's a particularly good coach anyway. But he, he can't you know, fly to Dortmund and try and negotiate a Matt. deal. He can't yeah. go to to you know to the Midlands and try and negotiate a deal for Grealish. He has to put that side of things in the hands of people that in truth shouldn't be anywhere close to it and I think until United appoint a sporting director until they get ahead of recruitment until they revamp their scouting network and actually start to listen to the massive analytics department that they have, I just don't see that's going to improve for them I mean how how a club can be so set on signing one of the most exciting young players in the world all summer long, never actually get close to doing it, and then end up scrambling around and signing, and, and with the greatest respect, because I love him, I think he's, a, he's been an incredible footballer, but signing a 33-year-old striker with, with injury problems for a ridiculous wage, paying his, his agents a ridiculous sum for, for what I don't know, and the only reason they ended up getting him is because nobody else wanted him. Everybody else had turned him down because they weren't willing to match the wages. It it just reeks of incompetence. It
0: is. And I think um, it showed a real lack of self-awareness too. And, and like I said, on a certain level, there was a hubris there of, you know, I think it probably does come back to Woodward. He's someone who's, who's been in charge of this side of things since 2013, and he hasn't really learned any lessons from from the fails of the past. Um, so, yeah, to to kind of just believe that you're going to get your way in the end when, when all the evidence points towards you points towards the opposite. Uh, I just don't understand that complete kind of how it can be so tone deaf to the situation. Um, and, you know, that's not the kind of person not the kind of thinking you need in charge of that, that area of of the club, that, that important um, squad building uh, and decision-making uh, role that he has there is not is not suited to him quite clearly by by this stage, and um, yeah, like you said, I think any coach who comes in is going to be hamstrung by it. I do think you know, if they went in high, Patrino would he get more out of the players than than Solskjaer? Would I think he would, and I think um, they they wouldn't be as bad as they are. But I, I don't think any any coach could truly kind of fulfil the potential of these players in this squad uh, and and the club, uh, you know, and get united back to where they believe they should be. As long as the people who are in charge of of putting that squad together um, are so bad at, at, at what they do. So yeah, there the needs to be changes all over. I think um, you kind of, in some ways, got to cut the head off the snake. But I don't think um, I, I just don't see it happening. I think the people in those positions have got too much power. They kind of it seems by all all intents and purposes, Edward is effectively his own boss. He gets to to, to choose to do the transfer side of things. It, it's sort of his reward for the for the great work he does on the commercial side. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't seem to be a huge amount of oversight as long as. The dividends are still there at the end of each financial year for, for the owners. Um, I don't think they're, they're overly concerned about challenging for titles and things like that. So, yeah, I, it just doesn't seem like there's any real, um, any way out in, in the short term. Um, it's, it's quite a sad state of affairs for a club who've fallen a long way in in a fairly short period of time. When you think about, you know, just 2013 with the last title under Ferguson, and how, how far and how quickly they've fallen, any time they kind of, start to scramble the way back up it seems they've had their legs cut out from beneath them and uh, that looks like that's going to happen again it, I think I, I can't remember who it was who who, um, who reported this but somebody looked into the numbers behind their transfer spending United spend big um, every time they miss out on the Champions League yeah. and spend very little when they make it <laughs> they just don't see see the correlation between how you know, the, the year following that that lower investment, they they miss out on the Champions League again. Um, so I think they're heading for one of those those down years again. Uh, certainly judging by the start they've made, um, they've already given themselves a lot a lot of ground to make up. Um so yeah, it's it's just not not good times and not there's yeah, just not a lot of people um, doing a good job over there on any side of, you know, any any in any aspect of, of, of what they do.
1: So I, I that same thing you've just mentioned I, again. I I don't know the journalist that reported it. I heard Mark Goldbridge say it. Um, you know, Mark Goldbridge is you know a, a well-known Manchester United fan, and while he may be a figure of fun to some, he actually makes a lot of good points when he's not overblowing. You know, the the greatness of his own club. When he's actually critically looking at his own club, he does actually talk some sense, and. I went and looked at it, and and since Ferguson left, every time they're in the Champions League, it's a small net spend. Every time they miss the Champions League, it's a massive net spend. And I was talking to Lee Scott yesterday, and I was telling him, I spoke to a journalist a few months back, who's well-connected with United, and that journalist said to me, these owners do not care about winning the league, they do not care about being in the Champions League every season, they only care about being in it, every second season. So that makes sense. When they're out of it, they have to spend to get back in. And you mentioned Pochettino and, and you know, there's two sides. Yes. He would absolutely get more out of the players because he's just a better manager and a better coach than Ali. That's just what he is. Uh, Max Allegri is exactly the same, mm-hmm. but I don't think they would put up with, the shenanigans that we see in the transfer market, I don't think they'd put up with the the lack of backing, especially Pochettino, who, you know, has already been through that at Spurs. Mm. I think if, if Pochettino was in charge of United going into this summer, I don't think he would be now, because I think he would have walked out the door. I think the same of Allegri. And I wonder if maybe that's why... United are going to find it hard if and when they do decide to replace Oli to, to bring in a top manager because there's been now seven years of evidence that this club isn't really taking things seriously or as seriously as they should. I mean, this is Manchester United. This is the team that have dominated English football since the early 90s. And now the ambition is not to dominate, not even to win. It's just to be in the Champions League every second year. And if you don't make it, we'll spend a load of money. Uh, but when you do make it, we're not going to spend any at all. It's it's such a bizarre way to operate yeah. your football club.
0: It's almost a, a, a relationship of mutual convenience, isn't it, with with and, and Woodward and the Glazers? Because at the top end, you've got these people who are kind of accepting mediocrity and um, aren't really looking to progress in the way you'd expect of a club of their stature, uh, and and. and and beneath them they've got a manager who's kind of pliable towards that or more so than like you said a, a big personality and, a, and an established name like Pochettino or Allegri would be and then and then with Solskjaer of course he's frustrated at what's going on but I think the incompetence um, above him perhaps um, has given him an easier ride from from fans and critics than he would have otherwise got had he you know for example had he got Sancho this year and and any of the other players you he wanted, there were no excuses then. Um so but but as things stand, I think he's got a little bit of a free pass. So I think there'd been a, a stronger spotlight on on his coaching ability. Um had those above him been more confident in what they were trying to do. And, and likewise, um those at the top, Woodward and the Glazers are perhaps, you know, quite quite content with having a manager who's not gonna kinda hold their feet over the coals as much as, as others might. So it's kind of, yeah, almost self perpetuating in that respect
1: No I, I totally agree with what you're saying and it is concerning it must be concerning for United fans to be in this situation where it's clear that the people in charge don't have the club's best interests at heart from a footballing point of view, yes they have the club's business interests at heart but I mean that's not, that's, that doesn't get the fans excited, they don't fans don't fork out thousands and thousands of pounds every year just to look at a spreadsheet and see that the club are making good money. That's, that's not what, what fans want. Um, I, I do sort of... It, it reminds me of when, when Gerard Houllier was Liverpool manager, when he left, he was interviewed and he said, when I came here, they told me that, all, that the plan was to get into the Champions League every second year. And this is for, where United are now. Now, it shouldn't take United as long to get back to the the very top as it did Liverpool, when you consider Hulia left Liverpool in 2004 and they didn't win the title until 2020. But there is a possibility that it does. Nobody thought when Liverpool last won the league title with Hansen and Steve Nicol and John Barnes and Ian Rush that it would take them this long to win the title again there's no reason it couldn't happen to united but god i i don't know i think united fans might riot if, if it get if this carries on much longer i i can see them i can see them properly protesting the problem for them is that the their best way to protest would be to hit the glazes in the pocket by not going to the games the problem for that is there's tens of thousands of people queuing up to get a ticket to Old Trafford to to go and see this this club because they've got such an enormous fan base that the Glazers might not
0: even notice. Yeah, you just wonder at what point that kind of shine is gonna wear off to that extent where you know the, the masses aren't gonna flock to them quite so much. The younger generation of fans coming up now might not be choosing, you know, those without a geographical or family connection True. to the club who, you know, have free reign to choose to sport whatever they want. They're going to choose somebody else. They're going to choose a Liverpool or a Man City or, or even a Chelsea for look at the exciting signings they've been making of late. Um, so maybe, maybe it, it might take a generation or two. It might be that kind of, might be that long. But there will come a time surely if United continue to underachieve, continue to miss out on the Champions League, or continue to not contend for for the biggest titles, and, and continue to miss out on the players that they want. That that's going to have an effect down the line. Maybe it, it probably won't be instant. You won't feel it straight away, but surely it's going to be there it, it seems logical that at, at some point fans might not turn away perhaps their fan base is is loyal enough to, to stick with them but over time you know it it won't it won't grow in it and it won't um you know the new fans coming in will will be will be going elsewhere so yeah it's just it's just a matter of time to see whether that that will materialize in the time that the glazers are still interested or whether whether they'll have got out and cashed in before it reaches that point
1: You'd hope that they will. For the good of the club, Mm. you'd hope that they will. Because the Premier League, no matter who you support, the Premier League is better when Manchester United are good. That's just, from a global brand point of view, the Premier League benefits from Manchester United being good. And that's just a simple fact of things. I think the Premier League benefits from Liverpool being good. I think it benefits from Arsenal being good. Because traditionally, globally, they're the three biggest teams in England. Um, City and and Chelsea have bought their way into being big clubs. Spurs have built their way in, but they're still like six of six. Um, the, the the three I mentioned, the the three you know traditional teams, they're the ones that do really hold the power globally for in you know the amount of eyeballs that will focus in on the Premier League and with so many teams you know being in phases of of building and becoming ambitious, Villa, Leeds, Everton, the other members of the top six, you are right. Like There's going to be a lot more options now. at Leicester City, there's a lot more options now for kids that don't have a family tie or, or a geographical tie to United. And the success isn't going to be there to draw them in. So, you know, if you're looking around and, yeah, you don't want to be a glory hunter, so maybe you don't go Liverpool or City, United aren't really going to be all that appealing to you. Like there's some great young players there. I love Rashford. I love Greenwood. I like Martial. I think there's quality players at the club, but you know, the style of football is not great. The manager is not the type who'll draw you in. Yeah. You could, uh, could well see that their, their fan base just starts to fall off in the next generation. And, or and the one after that, if, if, um, if things don't change, um, Ryan, so you have a new book that you're working on. Um, for people that don't know, and if you don't know, you, shame on you. Uh, Ryan wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Next Big Thing, which was about footballers who were hyped up in their teens as the ne- as the next big thing and, and didn't quite make the grade for one reason or another, be it injuries, personal life, hitting, hitting a wall in their development uh it's a brilliant reader i highly recommend it what is the new book about and when when can we expect it?
0: well it's it's going to be a while um it's not out until around it's going to be either august or september next year i think is is the uh the the aim for for putting this one out but the book is about academies um so again it's a, a youth development theme um as was with my my first book um but for this one i've been going into academies all up and down the country spending time um just kind of Seeing how they do things, meeting the people um, behind the processes, and um, the aim for the book is to to kind of comprehensively answer the question of how are players, young uh, homegrown players like sort of Marcus Rashford or Trent Alexander Arnold, how they produce and at what cost. So. Um, I've been i speaking to key people behind the developments of those two players in particular. So there's a lot of Liverpool focus, a lot of Man United focus, but also it, it stretches out more broadly than that too. So I've been looking at um, clubs all up and down the the football pyramid. So I've been into academies like Man City. I'm going up to um, meet with someone from Man United later today. Um, but I've also been down to to Shrewsbury. Um, I went mean, was at Barry's Academy before before they closed. Um, Uh, Kidderminster was another one I've been to just to get a really broad picture of um, how money affects player development, uh, budgets, um, how different teams do things differently and and how they do things similarly. Um, One of the most interesting things I found out was how similar in their approach to developing their young players United and Liverpool are. Um, There's a lot more that connects them in that respect and that separates them. And that's a focus upon as a, one of the chapters in the book. I'll also be looking at um, some of the things that the guys like Michael Calvin have, have covered uh, at length in their in their work too. So um, kind of what happens when um, when players are released from academies, what support is there for them. I've been speaking to players who've been released and I'll be speaking to people from the FA and all different types of initiatives to support players and their wellbeing and their welfare uh, I'll be looking at what clubs do to protect the the well-being and welfare of the players that are still on their books and how that's developing over the years. So it's going to be just a real comprehensive sort of peek behind the curtain at, at academies and English football at all levels. Um, I've been working on it for about eighteen months now. Uh, my deadline is rapidly approaching. Um, I signed my contract on it a few weeks ago, and I now have about five months to finish off the book. So I'm just doing the, the final few interviews before I get to to write the whole thing up. And yeah, you know, as I say, I think the aim is for it to come out. Um, sort of early next season uh, so still a while off but um yeah it's an exciting project one i've been working on for a long time and uh yeah it's been really fascinating to meet some of the people behind behind the players and behind the processes that that are so well known so uh yeah, it's, it's very full of of the characters and, and the people i've met along the way who who are shaping these clubs and how they work um so it's not just about you know the the x's and o's it's it's the people too and the places and. The relationship between uh community and, and uh academies and you know a lot a lot of different themes are explored but but the overall uh point is to kind of look at how um the best young english followers from this you know especially talented generation of guys like foden is another one who's focused on quite a lot in the book how that how this generation has come to be uh the mistakes along the way the mistakes of recruitment um I spoke to a lot of people in, in recruitment at, at Man United in particular, it's, you know, the incompetence we discussed at senior level was was present for a long time in the academy too. I I talked about how they missed out on Daiwka of Makano uh, purely for the fact of failing to get in writing an agreement they had made with him when he was sixteen and uh his he changed agent the next day and decided no one no longer wanted that office so they missed out on him and the guy they supposedly are interested in to the tune of sixty million pounds or so. These days uh, I looked at how Chelsea missed out on Raheem Sterling uh, back in the day when he was at qPR two so yeah all the mistakes how, and how the, the whole um, youth development uh, has is, has evolved over the years in england and 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 where they are now a kind of real sort of state of play and um yeah that, that's that, that's what what I'm working on now
1: that sounds really really good and i'm I'm very very excited to, for that book to come out. Tell me this you mentioned speaking to clubs and and going to visit clubs lower down the football pyramid without giving away to uh, you know anything that's in the book in terms of how the rules have changed with regards to premier league teams coming in and stealing the best young prospects at lower league academies and you know the the amount of compensation academies have gotten have clubs as I, have people mentioned to you that that's become you know a major factor for the lower league clubs in terms of their survival and how they can continue to you know develop their academies and and expand and bring in
0: more young players oh absolutely that's that's the biggest thing i mean every club even even man city um have targets for for player sales from an academy that they, they all have to be uh self-sustainable and i think city have raised over 100 million in the last few years from sales of players who've come through an academy and made very few, if any, appearances for their first team. But uh, yeah, when you get down lower to the guys like Barry, who, who are obviously now defunct and Shrewsbury and in teams like that, um, the, uh, the elite player performance plan in EPPP, uh, which came in, I think, in around 2014, which stipulated specific prices for um, each young player dependent on their age, how long they've been in each academy and, and at what level, uh, what category of academy they've been coached at and for how long there's a set there's a set fee for each, you know, for each circumstance, which means that any outside club can come in and pay that figure and they get to take that player away. There's no negotiating. It's essentially like a release clause for, for young players. And it is a controversial topic. It is one that is discussed pretty much with everybody who I've interviewed so far uh, at every level. Um, and and as with any, anything, I think there are pros and cons, a lot of people have praised how it's kind of professionalized, um, the uh, youth development sector and and the coaching side of things um, and, and forced clubs into um, applying a, a greater degree of structure to how they set up their academies and there's more uniformity. But yeah, like you said, the issue of for these clubs who who rely on a sale of young players to to keep afloat and to sustain not only their academies but their their clubs as a whole, I mean, it can be difficult to use a, long, a young to use a talented young player who's clearly destined for. For great things, even that club's first team or higher up, to to lose them for you know pennies on the dollar kind of thing um, by a quirk of the the E Triple P guidelines, meaning that you know they might not have been coached at this one club for, for very long, or or this club might not be a very high category of academy. Therefore, their players, no matter you know they might be better tech- in technical terms than uh, a player at a category one academy, but because they've been coached at the category three academy, they're, they are valued lower. Um, so. Again, the clubs will lose out uh, at that end too. And you know, like I said, there's no negotiating. There's no you know, you know if you have Messi on your books at Rochdale, um, he's worth as much as you know the kid next to him, um, no matter how much time is spent on, on their development or uh, how high their individual ceiling is, and what they would have been worth had they made it into the first team, and had you been able to keep on to them for that long. So it does tie tie the, low, the uh, smaller clubs hands in a lot of ways, I think it probably does benefit the bigger clubs more than it benefits the smaller clubs, but again that's something I'm, I'm investigating and, and speaking to people about and hopefully that's going to be something that um, will we'll come out of the book you know, we'll see how, um, how the rules were in place, who they benefit most and, and what the purpose of them is
1: I remember a number of years back um, Liverpool signed uh, a Mecca Obi from Bury, from their academy Paid the you know the, the nominal fee, and he's sort of gotten lost, you know, in his development. Um, he is only now I think eighteen, nineteen, but he, he's he's not one that's expected to make the grade at Liverpool. At the same time, Bury had Jacob Badeau who they'd sort of rushed into their first team at sixteen, and at seventeen he was away off to Aston Villa for about nine hundred thousand because he's he'd made first team appearances so. They were entitled to a bigger fee for him. Yeah. And he got lost at Villa. And he's now at, at, Scunthorpe, at Scunthorpe United. And it just... Those two young players, had they been allowed to develop that bit longer at Bury, had Bury been allowed to get bigger fees for them, that money could have kept Bury alive. Um, yeah. we, you know, we see now at Macclesfield, they're gone as well. And unfortunately, with the the academy the, the gradings on Academy, like you say, category one is the highest grade. It's only clubs who really have the funding that can afford to have a category one Academy. Um, and you know, that does hamstring a a lot of young clubs. So I'm, I'm glad you're covering that in the book. I, I, you know, I I think it's important that people are aware that there's young club or some, sorry, smaller clubs whose lifeline is that they can develop young players bring them into their first team and then sell them on because maybe they don't make as much true match day revenue and commercial revenue to keep themselves afloat but when they can subsidize that with the players they're bringing through and developing maybe we see a lot more of it you look at like birmingham and the financial problems they've had but by selling jude bellingham this past summer that has solved a lot of their problems um, whereas I know that at, at least two Premier League teams tried to steal him away when he was about 14 and luckily enough, his ties to, to Birmingham were enough to convince him to stay, but it, you know, it could have been a massive blow to, to Birmingham if they'd lost him for free or well for a couple of hundred thousand as opposed to the near 30 million they got this summer.
0: Yeah, no, it's huge. And um, we spoke about Jack Grealish earlier in the in, um, interviews I did for that piece. I spoke to quite a few players from Villa's academy, from, from the era that he came up. And um, Grealish was uh, named on the bench, I think, when he was he was either 15 or, or a young 16 uh, for a game against Chelsea. He, he didn't get on, um, but he was he was put on a bench for a game against Chelsea when he was very, very young. And um, I learned the reason for that was that... Um, other clubs were sniffing around, and it was to kind of secure Villa a higher fee. I don't know. I don't know how exactly in monetary terms that that increased his stated value, or, or whether the fact that he didn't get on in that game uh, had an impact or not. But that's what I was told that he was put on the bench because he was this young player in the academy who other teams were looking at, and they wanted to kind of protect themselves and ensure whether that whether it was a measure to to keep him more interested and his family happier that he was progressing towards the first team at a rapid rate. Um, as well as you know, kind of fending off the interest by being able to command a higher fee for him. But uh, yeah, like you say, the, the, there is the potential for these rules to kind of see young players promoted uh, ahead of their time to to, to to levels they're not quite ready for. Um, and then the other side of that coin is, like you say, they get snapped up before they have the chance to really develop and end up at a, end up at a bigger club who are stockpiling players where they become a small fish in a very big pond and, and get forgotten about. Whereas they would have their, their development, excuse me, would have been better suited to staying put and uh, experiencing first seeing football lower down and working their way up in a more kind of organic fashion, the more kind of old old fashioned way of doing it. Um, so, yeah, these changes that there's there's some benefit to them, but yeah, there are downsides too. And I think the balance of power um, is certainly in favour of the bigger clubs, as you'd, as you'd imagine,
1: for sure. And um, you know, while we do see the likes of Trent and Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood, Curtis Jones—those kind of players break through. Um, for every one of them, you know, you you get players that end up at, at Man City or or Chelsea and end up in that endless cycle of loans, and never never really get the opportunity to break through. I suppose it's one of the reasons that Jadon Sancho pushed his way out of Man City because, you know, other than Phil Foden, nobody nobody's come through that academy and, and made an impact in the first team since this whole Man City project started. I think you'd have to probably go back to the likes of uh, Mika Richards and Michael Johnson to yeah. find the last player that actually made it at that city uh, from their academy. So that book is going to be, out, what not you say, August, September next year?
0: That's right. That's the plan so at the moment, yeah. It's going to be uh, released with Polaris Publishing um, around early next season. So, yeah, keep an eye out for that one
1: perfect and in the meantime do pick up Ryan's previous book the next big thing how football's wonder kids lost their way Uh, at about 15 young players who were tipped for the top and never quite got there it's an excellent read and I highly recommend it Ryan this has been great I know you've got to head to Manchester now to uh to do some more work for the book, so thank you very much. Is there anything you've got coming out uh, in terms of articles or profiles that you've written that you want to make people aware of? uh
0: what have I got? Um, yeah, there's a piece on Jamal Musiala profile uh, coming out. Um, whenever Bayern start their Champions League campaign, <laughs> is is when I believe I'll be coming out through the BBC. So I, that'll be on my Twitter. And um, I've done a profile of Weston McKenney as well for the Guardian, which will be out. Um, I believe, once the basketball was out of the way because it's it's for the U.S. desk of the Guardian. Uh, so once they've got the basketball finals, the NBA finals out of the way, that one will be published uh, about his journey um, through Germany up to Juventus and I spoke to you know, a lot of people who have worked with him along the way to get an insight into his character. And it's the same kind of thing with Musiala too. So yeah, they'll be, they'll be there. I'll post them on Twitter if people want to want to take a read.
1: So it's at Ryan FW, That's me. Um, I do want to say, before I let you go, I don't get jealous... Very often, uh, but you have uh, an article in the current um, issue of World Soccer magazine. <laughs> it's a, a, a feature on uh, Chris Richards, the young Bayern Munich defender, our uh, young Bayern Munich, young Bayern Munich player, the American. Um, and when I saw that, it made me very jealous. It made me very, <laughs> very jealous because, you know, growing up, that was a must-have. World yeah. Soccer magazine was the must-have in my house anyway
0: yeah no it's the same for me I I, I tweeted after it that I've been reading World Soccer since I was about 10 I used to steal copies of it from my school library when I was a teenager um I'm a sus- subscriber to this day it was um it was a really big thing for me i so yeah it felt you know more of a moment for me in my career than even getting a book published was it's uh, I don't think any publication has influenced me and uh, in my choice of career quite as much as World Soccer has so Yeah, until I get published by Sports Illustrated or I'll get a profile in Esquire, then, um, yeah, this is probably the the highlight for me so far.
1: Yeah, very easy to understand why. Ryan, this has been brilliant. Thanks so much, and hopefully we'll have you on again soon.
0: That has been great. It's been really fun to catch up Tuesday. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. Bye. And
1: that's it. That's our show for today. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, as always, to EPL Index, to Liberty Shield, to Ryan for taking the time out, to Guy Drinkle for his incredible work on this podcast every every day. And to you for listening. Without you, I wouldn't be bothering doing this. Well, I might, but it'd just be me talking to a microphone and nobody listening. And, uh, you know, that's not fun for anybody. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Take care.
0: Network.